grab a Bible, grab a sermon handout. They're on the resource table. We are going to be in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Acts 19, 21 through 41. Just to give you a little bit of context for what we're talking about today, I know it's kind of easy if you miss a Sunday or something, you kind of lose where we're at in the book of Acts. But last week, we looked at a sample of how Paul spent his time in Ephesus. This is the longest stay Paul had in, in anywhere in terms of his first three missionary journeys. He stayed at Ephesus almost or up to three years. And so we saw kind of a sample of what he was doing, which was basically being a witness for Christ, is what we looked at last week. And then this week, we're going to see how Paul is going to end or round out his three-year Ephesian ministry. And uh, Luke basically tells us that, that the gospel ministry that Paul is, is engaged in in Ephesus was so effective, the Holy Spirit was working so much in the hearts of those Ephesians that non-Christians in Ephesus, which was a big, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people in the surrounding area, they noticed the societal effects of so many people coming to faith in Christ. So many people were giving their life to Christ and trusting him and following him that the non-Christians began to notice a shift in the culture and in the society. And I think all too often, churches and Christians are known for our failures. And I, I, I would just challenge you, go to your favorite news media outlet and put the search term pastor in there. And yeah, some, sometimes there's some local news, we'll do some pastor did something good, but a lot of times it's the failures that pop up to the top for churches and pastors and denominations. But today's passage reminds us that Christians can also become infamous in the eyes of our culture for actually doing what we're called to do, what we're called to do from Christ, which is to make disciples. That we can become infamous for transforming lives and thereby changing culture through the power of the gospel because it's disruptive. The gospel disrupts our lives. It disrupts our culture insofar as our lives or our culture aren't aligned with, with Christ and what Scripture says about God and us. And so we can become infamous for that. Jesus promised, he didn't mince words, he promised that we will experience pushback from worldly people who have rejected him. If, if a person of the world, and I don't mean that in a, a, a derogatory sense, but if someone's holding to worldly values and not Christ, Eventually, if they reject Christ, they're going to reject the followers of Christ and what we're doing. But Jesus also commands us to make disciples around the world, regardless of the opposition. He promises that there will be opposition, but at the same time, we're to do what he called us to do in making disciples. So here's the big idea for today. The strategic operation of the church, our gospel ministry, leaning into this great commission that we've been given, the strategic operation of the church will face strategic opposition. So we need to be prepared for that. That shouldn't surprise us. And this is very different in different parts of the world, okay? We're not facing the kind of persecution somebody might be facing in other countries around the world today. But first point is every church should operate strategically. And what do I mean by that? Every church should operate strategically. What I mean is that we need to be thinking about gospel ministry. Like church is not... there are, there are fringe benefits of being a member in a local church, right? We're reminded of certain truths, we're encouraged, we're convicted, corrected, rebuked, loved, blessed, provided for. I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful things. 
But guys, we as the church are called to a mission, and that mission is to make Christ known to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all the nations. That's what we're a part of. So when we think about gospel ministry, every church, every denomination, every Christian, every Christian family needs to be thinking about at least these three questions. The first one being, where are we going to go with the gospel? When are we going to go with the gospel? And who are we going to send with the gospel to these places? So Let's look at Paul's strategic operation in Acts 19 to kind of show us what this looks like in his life, and his ministry. So first of all, we see where Paul wants to go. In uh, verse 21, at the start of our passage, Luke writes, Now after these things were finished, that's all the stuff that Paul was doing in Ephesus that we looked at last week. After these things were finished, Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So a very clear picture of where Paul wants to go with the gospel. So Paul wanted to eventually share the gospel in Rome, right? And he says this in some of his letters as well. But he was led by the Spirit to first finish out this third missionary journey that he was on. He didn't go directly to Rome. He said, in the Spirit, I have decided to go to Macedonia, to Philippi and these other places, and Achaia, uh, Athens and Corinth and elsewhere, and then go back to Jerusalem before eventually heading out to Rome. That was his plan. Next, we see when he wants to go. Look at verse 22. Luke writes this. He says, And after he sent into Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So I know this seems so obvious, but Paul wasn't ready to leave Ephesus yet. He did feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to these other places, but it wasn't time yet. He wasn't ready to leave there. And from his statements in Acts, we can guess that he stayed in Ephesus for up to nine more months before leaving. Because all in all, his ministry there was three years, he says later on in Acts. So he stays there for many more months. And then finally, we see who he sends ahead. So he's thinking strategically about gospel ministry. He wants to go to Macedonia and Achaia and these places. But who's he send ahead while he is not yet ready to leave yet? So we see that, and we saw that in verse 22 that I just read. Paul stays in Ephesus for a while after he sends into Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus. Now, interestingly, and this is, I I didn't even notice this the first several times I read this passage, but he doesn't send his Macedonian traveling companions. We're going to see them later in this passage. He doesn't send the people that are actually from those churches, those cities in Macedonia. He sends two other people, Timothy and Erastus. And and basically, he keeps the Macedonian traveling companions with him in Ephesus, and then he sends these other guys. So what we can assume, and this isn't explicitly stated, but we can assume he made that decision knowingly, willingly. He decided, no, 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 I'm not going to send you guys back to your relatives and neighbors. I'm going to send these other two guys for whatever reason. But we can assume that Paul was being strategic, not just arbitrary about that decision. And then he kept those other two with him to go with him later in the year. So our first point today is that every church, just like Paul's ministry there in Ephesus, with that church in Ephesus, every church should operate strategically just as Paul did. Next, every church could be opposed strategically just like Paul was. So now let's look at the opposition to their gospel operation. The more evangelistically ambitious we are, the more likely we will see strong resistance. I just want to make a point. 
we firmly believe in the existence of a spiritual enemy to God, Satan. Right? You don't, actually, you don't technically believe that to become a member of our church. But certainly to get into teaching and discipling and leadership in the church, you would have to acknowledge that. Because to, to act as if that's not true is to miss the fact that we're in a spiritual war. That there is spiritual warfare going on all around us all the time. And just like if you were just walking around between the trenches in real warfare, it's going to be easy to take you out. And so what we need to realize is as long as we're not sharing Jesus with people, as long as we're muting our evangelistic witness for Christ, then Satan's got limited resources. He's not going to send all his resources to take out some church that's just minding their own business and not sharing the gospel. But as, if we increase our ambition for evangelistic ministry, if we really start prayerfully pleading to God to bring people to faith in Christ, and, 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 and then we start seeing the success that the Holy Spirit brings in softening people's hearts to the gospel and winning people for Christ and seeing people's lives changed and their marriages and their parenting and the culture, our neighborhoods, our communities, then yes, that's going to put a target on us. And I don't say that to scare anybody. I'm just saying our enemy has limited resources, all right? So the more evangelistically ambitious we are, the more likely we're going to see strong resistance, both spiritual and otherwise. And this is exactly what happens to the church in Ephesus in our passage. As Jesus transforms the people and the culture of Ephesus, we see three results right here in the passage. One is the indictment of Christians. Christians are indicted for various things, which we'll look at. And then we see the incitement of the crowd. The crowd is whipped up into a fury. We'll see that. And then finally, the intervention of a clerk. And I love the clerk in this. We're going to talk about him in a second, too. But first of all, when Jesus transforms lives, Christians might very well be indicted. Look at verses 23 to 27. In verses 23 to 24, we learn of this fellow called Demetrius, and Demetrius was a silversmith. There's people that take silver, they melt it down, and they make things out of silver. He's a silversmith. He represents a whole bunch of craftsmen who worked with metallurgy and creating different things out of metal. And it says specifically in the passage that he made silver shrines of Artemis, okay? That was one of the Greco-Roman goddesses, Artemis. And so this guy, Demetrius, clearly from the account here, the narrative, he feels threatened by the growing church. So what does he do? He strategically indicts the Christians on two accounts. And pay attention to these indictments. In verses 25 and 26, he says that the Christians posed a threat to considerable profit. And this is important because he's talking to his fellow craftsmen who make these shrines to various gods and goddesses. And so what he does is he appeals to their pocketbooks, to their bank statements of these fellow craftsmen. And basically he makes the case that more Christians in Ephesus means less people buying pagan trinkets which was this big industry in Ephesus that they were all tied to financially, economically. And so he makes an indictment that they're threatening the prophets. The prophet, not the prophets. <laughs> and then in verse 27, he says that Christians pose a threat to cultural pride and identity. This is his second indictment. So the first one's pretty personal for him. The second one gets more general for all of the Ephesians. Ephesus is known world around the world, the, the Greco-Roman world, it's known as the location of the Temple of Artemis. 
This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was this massive, it was the largest pagan temple in the world at the time. And, and, and Ephesus is where it was. It's where it was constructed. So there's a great deal of pride in the worship of Artemis and specifically worship in and around the temple of Artemis. And as men and women became followers of Jesus, they stopped paying tribute to Artemis and her grand pagan temple. You see how that works? They set aside those idols. Just like when we come to faith in Christ, we might set aside idols we have. And maybe some bookie in Vegas is going to feel the pinch if enough people start going, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be using my resources in this way. Well, it's the same thing in ancient Ephesus. They started feeling the pinch economically when people started not participating in these pagan worship ceremonies, which oftentimes brought sacrifice of money and so forth. All right? So in the eyes of the pagan worshipers, and particularly these people building, making the shrines that people were purchasing for the pagan worship, This was an indictment on the church. And so they respond by strategically upsetting the city. Time and time again in the book of Acts, the way people try and attack the church is through causing commotion, uproarious crowds, uh, 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 getting really loud, basically. And they didn't even have social media back then. Can you imagine? All right. So when Jesus transforms lives, crowds might be incited. Now, I love the word incited. I, I, yes, I chose that because it was alliterative and, you know, I'm compelled towards that in these sermon outlines. But I really like the word incited because it's exactly what we see happening in Ephesus in our passage. It basically means the English word that we use means to encourage or stir up violent or unlawful behavior. It's whipping up a mob. And so we see the result of this in verses 28 to 34. Luke writes, when they heard this, these are the craftsmen and the other Ephesians that are a part of this. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began shouting, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great. Can you imagine like hundreds or thousands of people chanting that? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then verse 29, the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's Macedonian traveling companions. Couldn't find Paul, found some of the people associated with him, grabbed him, dragged him into the theater. So Luke wants us to know that this unruly crowd was really loud. And again, translate that to 21st century, social media and everything else, right? They were just using their voices in a theater in Ephesus. And it's so loud that they completely disregard the rights and the reason of others. Mob mentality takes over, and they completely disregard the rights and the reason presented by others. So in verse 29, the raging crowd disregards the rights of Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's Macedonian traveling companions. They simply drag them into the theater for some good old-fashioned mob justice. They weren't concerned about any sort of legal process, okay? They were just stark raving mad and just went into mob justice mode and it seems they would have done even worse to paul because paul wanted to actually go into the theater and like confront the crowd he just does that i don't know right but his friends the other disciples and even some of the uh leaders in that city convinced him not to because i'm sure they would have done even worse disregarding his rights and we see that in verses 30 and 31 And then in verse uh, 32 to 34, the raging crowd disregards reason as well. When Alexander, who is a Jewish man, 
is put forward. The crowd, the, the Gentile crowds, would have had trouble uh, differentiating between Jews and Christians because most of the Christians were Jews back then. Certainly the missionaries that were there, like Paul, were Jewish. And they were both monotheistic. They both sounded similar. And so Gentiles, a lot of times, would lump Jews and Jewish Christians and Christians in general together, okay? So, so the, the, it seems that the Jews in Ephesus put forward Alexander to try and present a reasonable case to the crowd. Guys, listen up. We're going to put Alexander up there. He's a good rhetorician or speaker. He's going to calm things down, right? But as soon as they realize that he's Jewish, therefore he's not one of the pagan worshipers. He's not in support of Artemis and, the, and, and Artemis's pagan temple. They realize this guy's not our friend because he doesn't worship Artemis as we do. And that's what they were upset about. So what do they do? They just shout him down. They just shout him down until he's pulled off the stage. And so they don't want to hear his reasoning. They just shout him down. And for two hours, I love that little detail. For two hours, they simply shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, like a bunch of soccer hooligans, you know, just for two hours in the theater. But this did not last long. Shortly thereafter, something happened. And sometimes when Christ changes cultures, when the gospel is disruptive and we see Christians indicted on various accounts and we see crowds incited in various ways, sometimes a lone clerk, a lone city official can intervene with level-headedness and lawfulness. And that's exactly what we see happening by God's grace. By God's grace... The town clerk in Ephesus intervenes. A town clerk was like a city manager. They were also in charge of the temple uh, in various ways. So he's kind of the keeper of the temple, the town manager, all these different things, right? But he's kind of like a local bureaucrat. And he uh, uh, steps up to the crowd and he, he calls them out. He intervenes before they can take more drastic measures against the Christians in that city. So look at verses 35 to 41 with me. This, this lone city official stands against the masses for the sake of level-headedness and lawfulness in the face of rage, confusion, and lawlessness. And he affirms the crowd's pagan sentiments. He's not saying, crowd, you're wrong. He's not a Christian. I mean, he totally, he, he's the keeper of the temple, most likely, all right? So he's saying, like, your sentiments are right, crowd. Artemis is great. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows, you know, how wonderful Artemis and the temple here are. And that's part of his reasoning for why they need to calm down. He affirms their pagan sentiments, but he condemns their actions and even warns that such an unlawful gathering could bring the unwanted attention of the Roman army. They were a free city. They had a lot of privileges under Rome, under Roman occupation. But if they start having unruly, unlawful uh, shenanigans in the, in the temple, then Rome's going to come down hard. Rome was all about the the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. And if you start doing this, you're going to have a legion in your town all of a sudden. He's like, guys, you need to chill out. We're going to bring some unwanted attention if you keep this up. So in this way, God stalls out the strategic opposition of the church to the church in Ephesus. All right. But like Ephesus, any church, including Wayside or any other church who has evangelistic ambitions, in other words, we want to see people find hope in Jesus Christ. We want to see people's lives changed by the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Any church that really wants to see that could be opposed strategically and all the more as the gospel transforms lives and actually changes the culture, disrupts in some people's eyes. 
So speaking of government officials, um, Carl sent me this uh, article the other day. He used to live in San Antonio, and he gets uh, a news feed from the San Antonio Express News. And he forwarded me this article, and I was intrigued by it, and you'll see why in a second. Um, but it's, it's an article about the superintendent of San Antonio ISD, San Antonio Independent School District, who sat down just weeks ago with angry residents in a particular neighborhood in San Antonio to explain how their local elementary school had been rented by a church plant and how the district, after renting it to them, after the agreement was struck, how the district subsequently decided to disallow the church from meeting at that school. That's what the whole article is about. In fact, there's been two articles now about it. So the article, the original one, was entitled Pastor's Plan for Church and Progressive San Antonio School Derailed. <laughs> that, was the, that was the title of the article. I was intrigued. So from what I read, from what I read, it seems that some of the residents in this neighborhood in particular launched a strategic I mean, they had meetings, they had gatherings, they had all sorts of uh, communications online and otherwise. But they basically launched this counteroffensive to keep this church plant from meeting in their neighborhood school. And the author of the article uh, writes this, Residents near Mirabeau Lamar Elementary School were startled to learn that a church had rented space there for Sunday services, and even more startled by the openness of its pastor about his desire to use the school to convert their graceful, shady, and very much gentrified Mankey Park neighborhood away from its alleged hostility to the gospel. <laughs> uh, so based on what the residents said about this pastor, you would think he was a complete dirtbag. I mean, you read the, 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 the quotations and, it's, and some of the replies to an interview he did online, and you would think this guy is the scum of the earth, Right. And I actually went on and watched this almost hour-long interview he did with this podcast, this video podcast, and he was talking about how God led them to this particular neighborhood because they wanted to share the hope of Christ with the residents. I mean, he was really clear about that. But I watched it, and as I did, he came across as, as, a, as a really level-headed, kind, humble-hearted guy. I mean, honestly, like, they wanted to bless the school, they wanted to bless the neighborhood, Right. Um, one, one person on the reply to that interview just called him toxic. They're just like, this guy is toxic. Uh, another resident described the church's plans as predatory when they talked about wanting to share the gospel with people. One woman described the pastor like this. She said, the way this person very insidiously wormed his way into our community was about a year ago when he innocuously innocuously asked in a Facebook post about the demographics and where to find the demographics of this neighborhood. So she went back and found that post he had put on there. Then, I think in February of this year, he said, hey, we're moving into this neighborhood. Again, using very vague language, never with any word about the true intention of using Lamar, that's the school, as a church for his teachings. So I watched that interview again, and he, he did, I mean, he was, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was caring, uh, he was humble. But even so, several of the residents, they opposed the church meeting at the school. Why? Why did they oppose it? Because they called it a danger to the community. That was the words, danger to the community, inciting fears for the security of the school building and for the safety of the children. And one woman even, even brought politics into it and said, you know, the, 
the politics that are going on right now, and she merged the political climate with like recent school shootings. And she said this, she said, especially after Uvalde, should we be allowing anybody to just take up school space, she asked. Even though the students will not be there at the time, that leaves the school very vulnerable. And honestly, as a parent, that scares me. Um, there's a lot of that, and this was all in the article. But folks, for the life of me, I, I don't hate these people that said this. I vehemently disagree with them. But, but for the life of me, I can't figure out how it would be dangerous for a community, for a neighborhood, to have a church plant meeting in their elementary school gym and cafeteria on Sunday mornings when the school would otherwise be completely empty. But, but this takes us back to the point of today's passage. When the church is operating strategically to share the gospel and to see lives transformed as people find eternal hope and forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ, it might very well also face strategic opposition from worldly people who have already rejected Jesus. They've already closed their heart and mind to him and to the gospel. And that happens. And as the article stated, the, this is what the, she wrote, <clears throat> the arrangement to rent the school collapsed last week when the neighborhood heard the pastor spell out his plans for converting the area to Christ, students included. So the strategic operation of the church faced strategic opposition from some of the residents in that community, certainly not all of them, but some very vocal, very loud residents. So how can we apply today's passage? I think there's at least three applications, and I'll go through them quickly. First, we can pray for other Christians engaged in gospel ministry around the world. Guys, we don't have an option to just be quiet and mute ourselves. Like, that, that would be disobedience to Christ. We're not sharing Christ with people out of some hatred for people. We're sharing Christ with people as, you know, the uh, pen from Penn and Teller. Remember, did you remember this article? We saw it a couple years ago. But he's an avowed atheist, but he's really a sensible guy. And this uh, Christian businessman one time shared the gospel with him after a performance when he had called him up for a, a magic performance in Vegas. And the guy gave him a Bible and said, shared the gospel with him and said, I just wanted you to know that I'm a Christian and um, I wanted to give you this Bible and let you know that God loves you and that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him. And, uh, and, and Penn's doing this video uh, podcast and he is so complimentary of the guy. And, and he uses this example. He goes, how much would you have to hate me if you saw a truck bearing down on me and you couldn't even push me out of the way before it hit me. And he used that to talk about people's belief in eternal separation from God. That if you believe that somebody, if they don't put their faith in Jesus Christ, if they don't have forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus, through his death and resurrection for our sins, if you think that they're going to be eternally separated from God, the source of life and joy and all things good, and, and you're not willing to share that simple message of faith in Christ with them, of the gospel, Penn's like, you must not love me if you're not willing to share that with me. I mean, that's his take on it. And I think that's a great, I think he's a very sensible guy. Now, he hasn't become a Christian since or anything like that, but he at least respected the fact that this guy was willing to share that message given what he believed about eternity. Okay? And, and so we are, are sharing the gospel because we love people. So pray for other Christians engaged, not just in foreign missions, that too, our friends that are all around the world in these missionary endeavors, but also just right here. I mean, pray for the church in San Antonio. 
they're part of the Acts 29 network. They're, they're, they're planning churches there to share the gospel with people. Pray for them as well. Pray that God would give them faith, hope, love, joy, joy and encouragement to persevere in the face of strategic opposition because we need those prayers. Pray that those Christians, again, including this church I'm talking about, won't become discouraged or burn out and give up. It's not easy, right? And so let's pray that they wouldn't become discouraged. And second application, we can help Wayside become even more strategic in our gospel ministry to Great Hills and throughout Greater Austin. Guys, I read articles like this. That doesn't make me want to do less in sharing the gospel with people. It makes me want to do more. And so how can each one of us as members, I mean, we're going to do this at the commitment renewal ceremony. Uh, We're all going to come together and say we're in this together. All right. And if that is true, if we are members of one another in this local body of believers, then what role can you play in helping us become even more effective at sharing the gospel with people in Great Hills, in your neighborhood you live in, or all throughout Greater Austin? And we all have to pitch in and collaborate on that. So where are the prayer warriors who can pave the way for the gospel ministry? If you feel just, if you've got this, God has given you a passion for prayer. We need your prayers and we need you to help organize prayer gatherings and everything else. Where are the evangelists who can encourage and equip us to engage our friends and neighbors with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel? If you're just naturally that person that can just talk to the stranger at the bus stop and get into a spiritual conversation and share your faith and you just have a comfort level, not all of us do. And so we need encouragement. We need equipping. So, so how can you step up to help provide that? And then third thing is pray for all the leaders here at Wayside. Like I, again, reading things like this and seeing and actually experiencing some of the opposition personally, it can be discouraging. It can be upsetting. It can cause anxiety. Um, and, and oftentimes, if I'm not focused on Christ, if I'm not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in humility and dependence, then I will be anxious. Okay? So pray for the leadership here. Pray for me. Pray for the elders. Pray for the women's leaders. Pray for the discipleship group leaders and the Bible study teachers and leaders. Pray that God would give us boldness, but also humility. Pray that God would give us perseverance. Pray that God would, would give us wisdom and direction on how to bring the gospel to the people that are ultimately without eternal hope, that live all around us and throughout this city. And pray that we could stand firm in the face of opposition, sometimes fierce opposition. So folks, I'll, just, I'll close by saying this. Jesus did not shy away from the reality that his followers would face opposition. I could read you 20 passages right now where Jesus and his apostles make it explicitly clear that there will be troubles, there will be afflictions, there will be persecutions of varying degrees and varying places and times. He did not shy away from that, especially as they would be obedient in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see that all throughout the book of Acts. And Jesus said this on multiple occasions, but I want to read his words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 and 18. And I'll just close with that. Jesus tells his apostles this, the disciples that would become his apostles. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me. 
to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. He's talking about persecution for those early Christians who were Jewish, persecution from their friends and family who were Jewish. He's also talking about persecution from the Gentiles in these cities like Ephesus that they would reach for Christ. So he's saying from both sides of this thing, you're going to see these afflictions and persecutions. And so you need to be as shrewd as serpents, as innocent as doves. So we've already seen some of these things happening to the followers of Christ in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue to see even more of this as Paul finishes out his third missionary journey and eventually heads to Rome. And you know what? He heads to Rome in chains on a ship, chained to a Roman guard. Maybe not how he expected to go there, but that's how he gets there. That's how God sends him there. And we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead.